0: The rest of you, John chapter 12, we're going to begin at verse 12, and uh, let's take a look at what the scripture says this morning. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. May God bless the reading of his word. Thus says, says the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I used to ask a question frequently before I'd begin to share the word. I haven't asked it for a long time, so I'm going to ask you. So I hope you're well prepared. Is anybody here ready for some good news? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The Bible says that, that we are not to be ashamed of the gospel because it is good news. It is, in it is revealed the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, Greek, black, white, red, yellow, doesn't matter. The gospel reveals God's power to save you, to bring salvation to you and that's what we're going to talk about today. Today is of course Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of a week of celebrating and commemorating the last week of Jesus's life before his resurrection. And and so uh, kind of let me throw in a little bit of a commercial here. This is a week that I want to I want to really encourage you as families to set aside To to really help your children. And it's not just about your kids. Listen, we all need this to really focus on the meaning of what the the days of this week mean. So there's a lot of things going on around the city that you can participate in. Um, for example, tonight, I know many of you are aware There's a a, a big citywide prayer meeting at, at Jones AT&T Stadium And uh, the, a bunch of churches are, are going to get together and pray They're going to try to fill the Jones With people that are praying uh, for our city for revival And I think that starts at, se- at 5 o'clock through 7 If you'd like to go to that, it's an all-free event And um, you can find out more about that online um, This Friday night Friday, of course, being Good Friday, the commemoration of the day that Jesus was crucified, we are going to be having a... uh a communion service here just 1 hour 6:30 to 7:30 and man I hope that you will set aside every other thing you got planned to be here with us pastor David will tell you more about that at the end of the service and then of course um saturday there's actually an event called Project God's Corner some of you have participated in that before I've done it for I think 2 or 3 years now it's a lot of fun and um uh, it's going to to uh, be at Clap Park they'll start there and what we do is we just go around the city and hold up that say Jesus loves you. Simple as that. And, and you might think, oh, I could never do that. I'm telling you, it's always intimidating when you first get out there. And by the time you're into it, you're, you're like those guys spinning signs for Little Caesars and stuff. Because there's a lot of people out there that will encourage you. It's a lot of fun. We'd love to have you do that. If you want more details about that, you can see me after the service. I'll tell you how to be involved in that. And then lastly, Please make sure that you're going to be here next Sunday because we are going to, hopefully we do this every Sunday, but we are going to especially celebrate, commemorate And and really light the fireworks on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And celebrate the fact that we do not serve a God that is rotting in some grave somewhere. But He is risen. And He's not only just risen. He is reigning, folks. He is on His throne reigning over all of creation right now. And we are going to celebrate that fact. Uh, We're going to have a party here next week. And I hope you'll be a part of it. So anyway, but today, it's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, of course is the commemoration of the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem for this? the beginning of this last week. His eyes at this point are absolutely fixed on the cross. He knows why he's in Jerusalem. He knows where he's going there. In just five short days, he's going to be brutally and unjustly executed by this mob of angry Jews and these indifferent Gentiles who just don't want a revolution on their hands. And yet in seven days, praise the Lord, in seven days, he would rise from that death, conquering the final enemy and be crowned Lord of all. Unmistakable, undisputed champion of the universe, Jesus will be declared that. And obviously, like I said, we're going to talk a lot about that next week. Now, people who consider... Palm Sunday, often consider it curious that on Palm Sunday, historically, Jesus was greeted by this adoring crowd. And the Bible tells us it's called Palm Sunday because they would cut down the trees off the palm trees and they cut down the the branches rather off the palm trees and wave them as a show of celebration of of Jesus's arrival. They would take their clothes and they would lay them before the donkey, which Jesus was riding for the donkey to tread upon. Uh, But, but, The paradox is this. This is what we saw on Sunday. On Friday, this, this assembled crowd that was, that was there for those events was shouting for Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, On Sunday, they're saying, Hey, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. We'll talk about that word in a minute. But on Friday, uh, a, a very different kind of crowd is shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. They're charging him with blasphemy of the law. And often preachers will take this paradox, this irony, and they'll use it as a cautionary tale about the shifting winds of public opinion. But I want you to know that there are many Bible commentators who have concluded that we're not dealing with this fickle crowd. One day they're saying Hosanna, and the next day they're saying crucify him. But we're actually dealing with two different crowds of people. Because what happens is they they do this, these scholars do this by taking a careful look just simply at what the texts say. For example, Luke says that the people that were shouting Hosanna was the whole multitude of his disciples who were rejoicing as he entered Jerusalem. I think it's Mark that says it was the people that had gone before him and the people that were following. John indicates that at least part of the crowd were the people who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus. And the Bible says that they were actually actively witnessing to the revelation of his power in that event. But whether or not, I don't care what conclusion you come to today, whether or not they're the same crowd or two different crowds, I don't want you to lose sight for the real reason that the events that are about to transpire in Jesus' life took place. The reason of these final events and this massive shift in public opinion that takes place during his final week in Jerusalem. See, the reason the shouts of Hosanna morphed into crucify him was nothing less than the outworking of the preordained will of God. That's why it happened. L- let me give you some evidence of that. Some 600 years before that awful Friday afternoon, the prophet Isaiah predicted that this event would happen, and he used these disturbing words. He said, It pleased the Lord to bruise him, meaning Christ. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It says, He, the Father, has put him, Christ, to grief. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, just 40 short days or 50 short days after these events, he, he stands up and he, he tells the crowd of thousands that's assembled there. He says that Jesus Christ was delivered up and crucified by, get this, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I remember... I've said this before, but I remember when the movie Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie came out and there was this big backlash and said it was anti-Semitic because it made Jews look bad because they had crucified Jesus. And John Piper wrote this great response. He said, it was not Jews that orchestrated the death of Christ and it wasn't Romans that orchestrated the death of Christ. It was God that orchestrated the death of Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. But for what reason? Why did it please God, in the words of the King James, to crush His only begotten Son and put Him to grief? Why did He plan this this foreknowledge of His murder? Biblically, Two things we can eliminate. We know from many texts that it wasn't for some evil or crime or sin that resided in Christ's heart or some some evil done by his hands. Immediately before Isaiah states that it pleased the Lord to crush him, he says this, he says, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was spotless, the Bible tells us. Although atheists, who scripture clearly teaches us are incapable of understanding spiritual things. They love to lay the charge in mockery of cosmic child abuse at the feet of God. We also know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was not merely being cruel, nor was he at all angry with Christ. Because you see, both at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, this voice from heaven booms, this is my beloved son, And in him I am well pleased. So what was it? See, what was happening is that God was actually keeping a promise. And he was responding to a cry that had been emanating from the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, since Adam and Eve were first evicted from the Garden of Eden. See, the entire Old Testament and the Gospels demonstrate that the whole earth had been crying out for the same thing for deliverance for rescue for salvation they needed to be saved from what we could not escape on our own and now here he is jesus is entering jerusalem and He is not mounted on some awe-inspiring stallion who's snorting and stamping the ground. He's wearing no armor and there are no flags and banners telling of all his conquered enemies instead. Instead, he's robed just like any other peasant. He's riding a humble little donkey. What a sight it must have been. And yet... As he rides in, the picture of humility he is is received as the epitome of royalty. He is received with a reception that is given, that is reserved for only the king that he truly, truly was. Now listen closely. Bend your ear toward the text and listen closely to exactly what his admirers are shouting over and over, they shout this word that you may or may not be familiar with. And that word we've mentioned it a couple of times this morning is Hosanna. 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 You know, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But Hosanna is kind of a weird word in biblical languages because it's actually a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word. Word and actually a combination of Hebrew root, root words, and that, that combination of words is Hoshiyana. Hoshiyana. And it means, please save us, O Lord. It's an urgent cry. Save us. Come to our rescue, O God. Hoshiyana. It replies, urgency, a request to be saved. This word is only found five times times in the new testament and every time it's found it's being shouted to christ by the crowd as he's entering jerusalem most of the times when he's coming in on the donkey one time while he's entering the temple by a bunch of children But Hosanna, Hosanna. And and moreover, the the Bible says that the New New Testament writers, different gospel writers, they, they say that it is used in different contexts. For example, Matthew says that the crowd was saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David is a, is a term say, that recognizes that Jesus was the rightful heir to David's throne. Israel's most important king. You, Jesus, are the son of David. You belong on the throne of David. Mark rega- records them shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And John simply records them shouting what we read this morning, Hosanna. See, to to cry Hosanna, like we see it in John, is to express praise and joy. Both that salvation is coming and that salvation has arrived. To exclaim Hosanna to the son of David is to acknowledge that without a king, there is no salvation. There is no salvation. You ain't going to do it on your own. Salvation requires a king. Jonah, praying amongst the rotting seaweed in the belly of that great fish, prayed these words. He said, salvation belongs to the Lord. And to shout, as Mark records, Hosanna in the highest, is to recognize that salvation is not of earthly origin. But rather, it constitutes or originates at the throne of God, high above us. See, the original Hebrew word, hoshiyana the original Hebrew word is only found a single time in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 118, 25, and it's found in this phrase, save us, we pray, save us, we pray, Hoshianah. Oh, Lord, we pray. Oh, Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember, that's what they prayed when Jesus was entering. That's what they shouted rather when Jesus was entering Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. John Piper explains the interesting historical usage of this cool little word. He says this. He says, the meaning changed over the years. In the psalm here, in Psalm 118, it was immediately followed by the exclamation, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The cry for help, Hoshiyana, was answered almost before it came out of the psalmist's mouth. Hoshiyana, oh here he comes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And over the centuries, Piper continues, it, it, the phrase Hoshiana stopped being a cry for help in the ordinary language of the Jews. Now listen, instead it became a shout of hope and exaltation. It used to mean, save please. But gradually, listen, it came to mean, salvation, salvation, salvation has come. He concludes that there's two ways to cry Hosanna. One is a cry for help, and one as an expression of gratitude that our salvation has finally arrived. And can the church say, Hosanna, this morning? <laughs> Praise God. But why, you know, so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Why is it not found deeper in the New Testament, though? Well, think about it. After the story which the four Gospels relate, such a cry, Hosanna. Lord, come and save us, becomes absolutely obsolete. Paul, James, Peter, John, Jude, all of the writers of the epistles considered that God's saving, rescuing, delivering work to be a thing that was completed and now only needed to be proclaimed to the waiting and ignorant world who had not yet heard. He has come. He has brought salvation. I want to spend the remainder of our time together, (coughs) excuse me. I want to spend the remainder of our time together today considering what it means that salvation has come, what it means that we're saved, and what Piper meant when he said there's two ways to shout Hosanna. See, salvation is an interesting thing. If I asked you about salvation, especially if you've been raised in church or consider yourself a believer in Jesus, you probably would think that you have a pretty good grasp of salvation, but I've noticed that salvation is simultaneously the absolutely most vital doctrine for the church, but it's also at the exact same time the most misunderstood doctrine of the, of the church. Let, let me explain. When we start talking about salvation, it usually raises more questions after you, the initial talk about salvation. For example, people will say, well, how does one become saved? Or, what does one need to be saved from? Or, why do I even need to be saved? I'm a good person, isn't that enough? Well, first let's answer this question. What is... Salvation. The late John Stott, great Bible scholar, understands salvation brought by Christ the King in three distinct ways. Now notice the structure of this sentence, or this couple of sentences, and see that he's he's mentioning three distinct ways that we understand salvation. He says, Salvation itself, the salvation Christ gives to his people, is a the freedom from sin and all its ugly manifestations, B, the liberty, the liberation, rather, into a new life of service, and see until we finally attain the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, let's unpack this statement, and let's take a look at each one of these individually. Hopefully, by doing that, when we leave here, we'll have a, a, a deeper, a greater appreciation and understanding of what it means to be saved. So, have you ever? Uh, Maybe some of you are like this where it, it drives me crazy when somebody will get a new piece of technology, a new phone or something like that. I'm speaking Daryl's language this morning and 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 they they have the, the thing for a year, two years, and they've never discovered one tenth of what it can do. Doesn't that just drive you nuts? Probably not. You're like, no, my VCR is still blinking midnight right now. So. Um, and the problem is that you still have a VCR. That's the real problem. But the... But, um, that's kind of how people approach salvation. Somebody told them if they said this prayer that, they would, that, that Jesus would come into their heart and they could check that off their list and move on to the next life goal that they have. Can I just suggest to you that your salvation, what Jesus is working to accomplish in you, is so much deeper than that. It's so much richer than that. It's so much fuller than that. It is so much l- more life transforming than that. You'll see, hopefully, if you pay attention today, how thoroughly Christ Jesus intends to save you. Well, how thoroughly is that, Mark? Well, Hebrews 7 25 says this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Now, just think about that for a minute. Save you to the uttermost. Can I tell you what that means? It means that God does not intend to leave one part of you, spirit, soul, or body unsaved. He is coming after it all. 100%. He is intending to transform your life inside out, the whole man, the whole woman. I'm excited about that. I don't know if you are, but it's pretty good news. So let's break this down. So what does John stop mean when he says that salvation is freedom from sin in all its ugly manifestations? Well, to understand that first, we have to understand what the Bible says, the ugly manifestations of sin are, let's start at the beginning. Genesis three says that sin makes us subject to frustration and futility. What we want, what... I feel like will make me happy. What I desire will always be just beyond my grasp. Have you discovered that to be true? Uh, subject to frustration, subject to futility. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I never have enough money. I never have enough. You know what? I, I never have enough love and acceptance. For all the people that love me and accept me, there's always one jerk who rejects me and, and you know, disses me, right? That's the way sin does to us. It, it makes you unsatisfied. You can have all the trees of the garden, but not that one. And it's just galling me that I can't have that one. Futility, frustration. The Bible says that Adam was told that you're going to work the ground for food, but guess what, buddy? You're getting thorns and weeds. The woman was told, you're going to desire the affection and affirmation and protection of your husband. But many times you're just going to be dominated by him. And around and around and around we go. What else? Galatians 6 says that our sin will result in our eventual, it was our Galatians 5, in our eventual destruction. We can plan, we can strategize, we can build our towers to heaven. But Christ says, even to those who appear to succeed, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? If you choose the path of sin, you are heading headlong, rushing towards destruction Sin results in separation from God, not just in eternity, but right here and now. Prove it, Mark. Okay, I will. Thanks for the invitation. uh, uh, Isaiah 59 verse 1 says this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. And his ear is not dull that it cannot hear. What he's saying there is God is perfectly powerful to save anyone he wants to save. But listen, we should ended there. But your, everybody says my, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin's ugly manifestation is separation from God. Lastly, and most terribly, sin always results in death spiritually, emotionally, and ultimately physically. Adam and Eve were told that they would die in the day that they ate the forbidden fruit. Well, they lived like 900 years. No, 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 no. If you think that, you totally miss what happened. Their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and they were filled with shame. The moment their teeth sunk below the skin of that fruit, they realized that they had died. And guess what? The heritage of that one single act is that every one of us, you and I, boys and girls, we were all born dead. Flatline in our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, we're dead. Ezekiel says that the soul that sins will die. Paul says that the wages of sin are death. But watch this. This is good. When Christ died on the cross, he freed us from the curse of frustration and futility, and he replaced it with fullness of genuine satisfaction. When Christ died on the cross, he he removed from us the fear of impending destruction and promised in John 3 that those who believed on his name would have eternal life. No destruction. We are no longer, Ephesians 2, separated from God. But the Bible says that those of you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. But most of all, it gets better. We're going to talk more about this next week. Jesus Christ... In rising from the grave has defeated our most universal, our most intimidating, and our most unconquerable enemy, death itself. So much so that the Apostle Paul feels empowered in 1 Corinthians 15 to mock and taunt death itself. Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? Paul is saying because of Jesus' death Bring it. (laughs) How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus do it? Well, he did it by, by this, by taking all of those ugly manifestations of sin and the guilt incurred because of them that belonged to me. And he put them on his own sinless, spotless, flawless body on the cross. The Son of God himself, perfect, the praise of all of heaven, was murdered. And when by doing so, by submitting to be murdered, he therefore satisfied all of God's righteous anger against all of the ungodliness that had been accrued over the millennia by those who would now believe death died sin died because he took it all on his own body now when god looks at us he sees us listen to this when god looks at you i don't care what kind of week you had i don't care what kind of morning you had i don't care what kind of words were exchanged between you and your your spouse when god looks at you if you are in christ he sees you fully completely and thoroughly justified completely no matter what's on your sinner's resume No matter what you say, hey, let me tell you, I got some pretty good stats here, folks. No matter what it is, Jesus Christ has wiped it clean. He has wiped it clean. And the Bible says that your sins and your lawless deeds, he will remember no more. No more. This means, this is good news for y'all, because you came in here under a cloud, I'm telling you. But this means when I screw up, that little write-up doesn't go into my permanent record. God is not saying, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm Brace yourself for this. If you, if you can grab your seatbelt, we're going to hit some turbulence here, so you might want to buckle up. Listen to this, because some of you, there's going to be this immediate revulsion, this reaction to what I'm about to say. But if you don't believe what I'm about to say, you do not believe the gospel. Are you prepared? Because I am fully, completely justified in Christ. I am now as righteous as Jesus Christ. Come on, if you're going to do it, do it. Because of what Jesus did, I am right now Mark Sharp. And listen, if you saw Mark Sharp behind the scenes, you may not come to that same conclusion. Why can I say, how can I say that I am right now as righteous as A, I'll ever be, and B, as righteous as Jesus Christ is? You know why? Because this ain't my righteousness. I didn't do this. I didn't make this. I didn't put this on. I am righteous as Jesus because I wear the righteousness of Jesus. And my righteous standing because of that cannot be ever affected by the devil. It cannot be affected by you. It cannot be affected by the world. And here's the good part. It can't even be affected by me. Because I, I have been given righteousness. I did not and I could not have earned. It has been given to me freely. And nothing can take it away from me. And that's why I say with confidence and with gladness, I have been, past tense, saved. And here I cry out, Hosanna, my Savior has arrived. But uh-oh! Can't dismiss yet because there's a problem. I mentioned this earlier. Whew, I really don't want to tell you this, but too often I find that sinful behavior is still kind of my default setting i know i know the elders are gonna have to sit me down and talk me through this my default setting see it's all still too easy for me to lie and to lose my temper and to wallow in lust and gossip and unforgiveness But how can this be if i'm Fully, completely, and thoroughly justified, as I just said, and I fully believe. It's it's because of this. It's because my salvation can't only be understood as a past tense reality wherein I have been saved. But listen, my salvation also must be understood as a present reality wherein I am being saved. I haven't only been saved. I am still, this day, this moment, thank God, right this very instant, being saved. See, Christ didn't die, I'm going to free you from a lot of bad theology. Jesus Christ did not die to found a new religion. Whoa! Jesus Christ did not die to start a new church. Man, you really don't notice the crickets in here until I get started preaching. you notice that? I'm going to give you all another chance at that because I know you're, you know, thinking about lunch. Jesus Christ did not die to start a new religion or a church. But guess what? Jesus also didn't die just so I can behave. That, that's, that's how deep most of your theology goes and it's about this deep. That Jesus' sole purpose was to die to make me a good little boy or a good little girl. See, Jesus' purpose wasn't even to give me a glorious afterlife. His purpose was to, was so much bigger, so much better. Jesus' purpose was to make a brand new kind of people for his own possession and his own fellowship. That's what that was all about. See, his intention was not for you to, to know him and enjoy him in the sweet by and by. His, his idea was that this state of relationship would begin right now. I don't got to die. Gabriel don't have to blow his horn. I can know him and enjoy him and love him and fellowship with him right now. This is what John Stott meant when he said that salvation is not only to be stated negatively as in the freedom and deliverance from the power of sin. But also positively stated. As liberation into a new life of service. Because of this. Although Jesus has already completely justified me. As I said. He's daily saving me. From the ongoing ravaging, ravages. Of my indwelling sin habits. What does that mean? Well that means my slavery to myself. And my idolatrous desires. And this is what we call sanctification. The Bible says that right now, as the clock ticks away, right now we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And this also, just like our justification, is nothing you can take credit for. It is the work of God. The Bible says, when it talks about this transformation from one degree of glory to another, it actually says this, it says, and all this is from the Spirit. This is where obedience comes in. Oh man, now you're going to go and ruin it, Mark. I actually have a responsibility. This is where obedience comes in. It's not. It's not a, a, a painful responsibility. Jesus said His yoke is easy, His burden's light. Re- re- obedience is where I get to cooperate with the Spirit's work of making me new by just saying yes to Jesus. I get to do this. See, don't confuse when I talk about obedience. Don't confuse it with the obedience that you attempted in the old law-keeping kind of obedience where there was always the whip cracking over your head that we attempted and failed repeatedly before Christ found us. That stunk. I hated it. Probably because I wasn't no good at it. That law-keeping obedience will kill you. See, that obedience was driven by fear. But guess what? The whole world's different now. Now I'm motivated by love for my Savior. As a true believer, my heart is compelled to submit to Him. It's compelled to obey Him, compelled to please Him. Though I have to pursue obedience because I love Christ, I must remember, listen, this is the thing. This is where we get messed up. I'm pursuing obedience because I love Christ, but no matter what, no matter what, my acceptance before God will never depend on what I am attempting to do. My acceptance before God only depends on what he has done in his death and resurrection. And this is why it was what John Stott means when he talks about liberation to a new life of service. By the Holy Spirit's power, I do what I do, not because the law is breathing down my neck, but because since I have been set free from sin, I'm free to obey. I can do it now because I'm free from sin. The world often boasts of its freedom to blaspheme and fornicate and cheat and commit all kinds of dastardly deeds, but they don't realize that they're not free at all are actually enslaved to themselves and to all of those self-destructive things. True freedom is found only through grace. And grace, according to Titus 3:11 through 15, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to say yes to God. We serve the Lord with gladness and we find great fulfillment in doing so. As I continue to struggle with what Hebrews calls besetting sin, here too I can say, Hosanna, Hosanna. Lord, come quickly to save. I've found Jesus over 30 years now to be more willing to save me from my sin than I am willing to let it go. John Stock concludes this definition. By saying that the end goal of our salvation is that we finally attain to the glorious liberty of the children of God. Grab your Bible again, Romans 8. Look at Romans 8. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 550. I want to read you this. <clears throat> Romans 8, beginning at verse 18, it says, For I consider, everybody pay attention here, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Why don't you just let that wash over you for a second. Not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, we just talked about that, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the ch- children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says this. He says, The creation waits to be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom. Of the glory of the children of God. We as the children of God are already free in our spirits. As we talked about it. But he says the whole creation is in agony right now. It's groaning for the day. When when all of creation will be freed from the toxic effects. The ripple effect of sin in the creation. He adds that we ourselves wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters. Well what would that look like Paul? He says it's the redemption of our bodies. See, this is a reference to the great day that we're all waiting for as the Lord's church. It's a day when God's great work. Of salvation will be completed in us. Because you said a prayer, because you were baptized, your salvation is not complete. Yes, it's complete in the sense of that your spirit is saved, but God will save you to the uttermost. He will not stop till every part of you is saved, including that raggedy old body you're sitting in right now. You young people are like, raggedy. Listen, hit 30, hit 40, hit 50. Etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then every day you go, Ooh, raggedy. <laughs> and more so every day. Days coming, guys, when his salvation will be absolutely complete. We have been saved because. He justified us by the cross of Christ. We are being saved as he sanctifies us through the ongoing work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And guess what? We will be saved by God's glorification on that day when even our bodies rise from the dead to fully submit to Christ's saving power. But it's about so much more. Listen. I don't know what your image of that day is, but it's about so much more than merely crawling out of the grave like some kind of Christian zombie. Paul says that when we are raised, we will be raised incorruptible and we will be raised imperishable. That means no more aging. And all the 40 plus people said, you'll get it, 20 year olds, you'll get it. No more aging, no more disease, no more emotional distress. But best of all, no more sin. First John says this, it says, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. This is the fullness of what Christ died to purchase. Justification in your spirit, you have been saved. Sanctification in your soul, you are being saved. And glorification and resurrection in your body, you will be saved. And through it all, through it all, we cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, Thank you, Lord, that your salvation has come. Hosanna, oh Lord, come quickly and save us. Hosanna, even so, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to read one last scripture over you. I'll put it up here on the screen. And I'm going to pray a quick prayer of benediction over you. Pastor David will come and make some announcements and take a missions offering and we'll be done. But as I read the scripture, I wanted it up on the screen because I want you to see this. I want you to hear what Paul prayed for the Thessalonian church. He says, now may the God of peace himself Sanctify you completely. Now, we talked about sanctification. This is a bigger version of that word. This means save you, to, to go deep, that saving you to the uttermost. Now, may the God of peace himself, let's say, save you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Praise the Lord. Bow your heads, close your eyes. I just want to pray for you just for a minute or so. Can I just make an invitation to you? Please, if you're here, I don't know how to beseech you to be urgent enough to literally, if I could get on my hands and knees and beg you, if you are not following the Lord Jesus, if you are convicted this morning that you're following of Christ that you proclaim is a sham, or if you've never even considered it, will you please come and let Jesus save you to the uttermost today? This doesn't require a big production. It doesn't require sappy music. It doesn't require, you know, some magical prayer that I pray over you. It, 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 it it works like this. You sitting right there, look into the face of Jesus and you say, Lord, I've lived as my own man, my own woman, but no more. I could totally trust you to do what I cannot do on my own. Save me, Lord Jesus. Save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. And He will. He will. If you are praying a prayer like that today, there is one last step. You've got to tell somebody. You've got to let us know what God is doing with you. We're not going to mock you or shame you. We're going to celebrate with you. It's party time. If you'd like to talk more about these things, take one of those white cards Pastor David talked about earlier, fill it out, and say, Man, I am ready to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And just drop it in that offering box. Give us your contact information. We will contact you. But for the rest of you that are followers of Jesus, I want to pray for us all right now. So just keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. And I want to ask God to make his threefold sanctification, his saving of us absolutely complete as Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. Holy Spirit, be unleashed. (laughs) You have saved us. You have justified us fully, completely. Absolutely, we are as righteous now as we ever will be. We are as righteous as Jesus the Son. But Lord, we know that there is a lot of work to do. And so Holy Spirit, we just repent of our resistance to your saving. And we ask you, Lord, that you would come now and and continue your saving work in us. Make our souls more fully yours, Lord God. Our mind, our will, our emotions. And Lord God, help us to end the folly of trying to prolong and elongate this life as long as we can and pretend to be we're, that we're 5, 10, 20, 30 years younger than we are and just say, hey, this body's breaking down, but it's coming up. It's coming up. Father, help us to see with real eyes your saving work and how you do it. And Lord, our prayer together as a church, every one of us, Lord God, like those who waved those palm branches so many years ago is, Hosanna, Hosanna, come and save us, Lord. Thank you that you have come and saved us, Lord. We say all of this to your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.